We come to chapter 24 with the exciting transition from Christ's crucifixion to his resurrection. And this is an exciting passage of scripture. We have, um, I was going to say over the next few weeks, we have some exciting things, but we don't. Hey, <laughs> um, I don't have it for you, but other men will. But we'll come back to Luke and finish Luke up. It, we only have about um, two to three weeks left, um, but it's going to take two months because I'll be gone for three. So if uh, you'll bear with that, um, we are going to finish this with a Sunday of Scripture reading only. We're going to read the entirety of the Gospel of Luke when we are finished. And that will be our service one Sunday. Um, it's uh, it's that, that balance between tearing apart Scripture verse by verse in very small portions, but also remembering it's a story and uh, can be shared in one sitting and uh, probably should be read that way regularly. And so we're going to be doing that, and I've timed that a couple of times, and I think we can make it, depending upon how fast you can follow in your Bibles. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, I'll bring you on the New King James Version. God's Word says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths laying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Well, we will continue our study in Luke. We come to perhaps the second most frightening part of going to church for an unbeliever. The first one is the fact that they're going to tell you you're a sinner. That is by far the most frightening thing. If you really think about it, going to church is pretty benign. I mean, you come in, you sit down, you listen for an hour, hour and a half, and then you leave. Um, No one, I don't think, is forcing you to sing. We might sound like it sometimes, but you don't need to. And if you don't have Christ in your heart, there's no reason to, really. Um, no one's forcing you to give anything, just come and take and, uh, take what you hear and no one's going to, um, 
tackle you at the door if you don't make some important decision in your life. So it's really a pretty benign experience, and yet we find that the world's afraid of it. They are, some of your friends are deathly afraid to darken the door of a church. I'm convinced the number one reason is they don't want to be reminded that they're sinners. And the second one we are confronted with, I believe, today is that they are confronted with the power of God. What is God capable of? Because once we discover the power of God, we discover the responsibility we have to him. That we have to answer to him. That he is transcendent. He's above us and apart from us. He is holy, holy, holy God. And he's not one to just ignore. And he'll go away. The power of God is nowhere expressed more powerfully than in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the culmination of the work of Christ throughout the gospel story and coming into the account of his death and his burial, we come today to his resurrection and it is truly the the pinnacle work of the power of God. This is why we worship on Sunday. You've heard me teach that in the past. This is why we no longer worship on Saturday, because creation has been eclipsed by a recreation. And so even the power of God exercised in creating all that exists takes a back seat to this event. And when we're confronted with that kind of power, it is exciting if you are a recipient of it and you are on this side or it's working for you. But if you are working against it and you are its enemy, it's a frightening thing. Consider. If you are on this side of the mightiest military force on the planet compared to being against it, And so this morning I recognize that if you're listening to the podcast, you're going to have to deal with something that we like to pretend doesn't exist um, so that we feel safer. But the fact is that this power does exist. It is wielded by certainly a benevolent deity, but a deity nonetheless. Therefore, you will be held accountable against it. And there is no wiggling room here to avoid confronting the one who exercised this power. And this is what makes the gospel message uh, that confronts men. First, the fact that we confront with a holy God, and then we confront with a powerful God. And we enjoy both of those things. His holiness still frightens me, even at this point, even though he has made me holy like his son, imputed to me that righteousness of Christ. Um, but the power of God is something that, that uh, frankly, many Christians, I think, underestimate. I know I do regularly, especially when I'm taking trips to foreign countries. Uh, I'm sure that uh, trouble awaits that God can't handle. Um, and so I don't sleep as well as I should. Uh, and that's 
a sin that I confess freely and often. But a passage like this reminds us that we do serve the all-powerful one. And that he is a benefactor to man. But to oppose him, to be, to be and maintain and to remain his enemy, puts you in the most precarious position of any on the planet. We are going to be called today by Luke to remember. It's really the words of the angelic representation sent down to speak to the ladies. And then it's what Christ is going to do himself when we get to verses 13 and following. As he, and all through this chapter, that phrase, remember, that word, a phrase and a word, uh, remember. Why don't you remember? This is the plan of God. And why are you surprised at the exercising by God of his plan. Why are we always taken back by the power of God when it shows itself? Why don't we remember? And today's sermon is probably more for me than you. Why don't I remember? Every day, and all the things I confront, of the resources that God makes available to us, Before we get into the text itself, let's go, Lord, in prayer now. We're confronted with one of the more uh, challenging aspects of Christianity. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you that you have loved us and have exercised your power and authority for our benefit through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Lord, we know that if we reject that gift, that offer, that we will face that same power and authority in judgment without excuse and without the ability to avoid it. Lord, help us to sense, to consider, to meditate upon the seriousness of this event. We, We can look at the joy of it, but we also know the responsibility behind it. Lord, our prayer desire today is that we might know you better. We need your help. We pray for your spirit's liberty to work in each one of us. Not only to um, guard what is said and the one saying it, but what is heard and how it is received. Lord, convict in our hearts where that is needed. And it is needed. Lord, we pray you might encourage, as you have promised, to comfort us, knowing that real comfort, eternal comfort, comes through salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray you might comfort us, for it is needed as well. It is certainly beyond the capacity of any one man to do all this work. And so we rely upon the power of that only you possess to work through your perfect word today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.
Well, let's begin in dealing with the resurrection of Christ. Of course, we visit this regularly once a year when we celebrate that resurrection um, uh, around Passover. But uh, we come to this resurrection and we need to perhaps just support a little bit the historicity of the event uh, to substantiate it. Why? Because we don't really believe it. Uh, fundamentally, uh, we've never seen it happen. We uh, uh, struggle to comprehend it happening. Uh, and therefore, uh, the first challenge that we have in Luke chapter 23 is, did it happen? And the first challenge that you're going to have, really, in dealing with the resurrection is scoffers. And you're not going to be alone. Um, if you go to the book of Acts, you will find that when Paul preaches on Mars Hill, he has a hearing and he's fine. He is engaging them on many different levels, on, on creation and on, on some uh, philosophical levels of, of the idea of deity and uh, what it entails. And, and they're fine. They're listening and uh, they have no scoffing. They seem to be intent. They're trying to follow what he's saying. And then he says something weird that's just too out there, even for the men on Mars Hill. And they're pretty far out there. I mean, if you listen to the stories of the Roman gods and Greek gods and goddesses, I mean, that's how far out there they were. But when they get to this, this was too much. And what was it that Christ said? Or that Paul said about Christ? He rose from the dead. And they scoffed. That's just too much. We can believe that gods can come down here regularly and have relations with women and people on earth and that they have, and that they have children and we have people like Hercules. We can believe that. We can believe that, that, uh, there's a god on a chariot up in the skies. We can believe all that stuff, but there is no way we can believe that someone rose from the dead. I mean, these people had, uh, I mean, they called Christians atheists. That's what the Greeks and Romans called Christians. They were, most Christians during the Roman period were killed under the accusation of being atheists. Why? Because we didn't believe in all their gods. We believe in this man, Jesus, that rose from the dead. And we denied all the gods. We denied... Zeus and, and all of them. We, we denied them all. We wouldn't worship any of them. We wouldn't even worship the emperor. We denied it all. And for that, we were, our forefathers, our brethren, were slaughtered as atheists. We believed in a crazy thing that someone rose from the dead and him I will follow. We believe in just one God. And so we come to the historicity of this event, and I want to set that stage for you to recognize that if it could be easily, and it could be easily disproven, it would have been. Because there was opposition from every quarter. There was opposition from the Roman pantheon and from the Greek philosophers. There's opposition from the Jews who certainly wanted to uh, keep it hush-hush or prevent it if they could. And we come to Luke 24 and we find that the, the first opposition to believing that it happened was his own disciples. 
those who had followed him throughout the entirety of his ministry and have heard on a regular basis that he was going to rise from the dead. He was going to be crucified, rise from the dead, and they just, duh, I don't get that. Um, didn't believe it was going to happen. They did not go there with an expectation of seeing their Lord resurrected. They went there with the expectation of finishing his burial. And so we find them coming. They are not full of joy or hopefulness. They aren't full of watchfulness. They aren't looking for anything. They are there essentially in a state of disbelief and despair. They arrive, it says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning. We find from other texts it was even before dawn. And so the sun wasn't really fully up yet. They come, they, certain other women, um, and so he gives a list of those here uh, of who these gals are, and we've recognized them from other uh, portions of Scripture. And so here they come, ready to finish the job that was hastily done, certainly, um, on the day of his death. And we find that they're not prepared for what's happening. We are told in other Gospels that um, apparently, the ones who believed even more than the disciples were Jesus' enemies. If there's anyone anywhere in the text that believed what Jesus said, it was his enemies. I want you to let this sink into you a little bit. Jesus' teaching was predominantly very public. There were a few occasions he pulled his disciples aside and taught them. But um, remember that one of the accusations against Jesus was that destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. The enemies of Christ knew what he meant by that, that it was referring to his body. The false accusation was, oh, he meant this temple, this building on the Temple Mount. But he meant himself, and they got that. And so they go to Pilate and say, listen, um, this guy, while he was alive, said that three, after three days he would rise from the dead. Now remember... The disciples didn't get it. They weren't even looking for it. It was the Pharisees, the high priest, the teachers of Israel, the religious leadership, and this is what makes their guilt so incredibly intense, is because they did understand. They knew the Old Testament prophecies about this. They knew what Christ was stating. They knew what he was claiming. They knew what it would mean if he could really do this, that they would have to acknowledge him for who he is, God incarnate. And so they go to Pilate and says, you know what, um, the disciples might try something, a, a sneaky one on us, because this man said he would rise again on the third day. So I want you, So could you put a Roman seal on that tomb and post a guard. And of course, Pilate permits all of this. Um, he's kind of disturbed even further than he was before about it. And so we find these gals coming here. Uh, I don't know that they even know, knew that the Roman guard had been placed. I don't know that they were aware of a seal. Um, they didn't bring a lot of help to move the stone. And I don't know that they were expecting any of that. They come there uh, thinking that this is just another poor, tragic Jewish death. And we put all of our hopes in this one, and now he's gone. There's nothing that lends more to the credibility than the fact that even his own followers weren't really looking or expecting this. They weren't believing. 
And they would have to be convinced right off. And so we talk about the stone being rolled away and the, and the angelic presence and all that goes on here. And, uh, of course, in my theology classes, why did the stone have to be rolled away? Well, it wasn't to let Jesus out. It was to let them in. It was to let these ladies and Peter, John, all of these, the soldiers, anyone around could come in and see, there it is, it's empty. There is no body there. But they didn't, but it's unusual because they left behind the, the linens, the wraps. So that means it couldn't have been just a hasty grab and dash. Um, they would have had to carefully unwrap it, carefully fold it all there. This was something that, that from all evidence wasn't done in a hurry. Unless it was something miraculous. And we are confronted very quickly with the idea of the miraculous nature of this with the angelic presence. Any of his enemies could have simply kept this from happening if it wasn't the work of God. Any of his enemies could have demonstrated the foolishness of believing this and as one of the contentions all along is produce the body. In the courtroom of evidence, produce the evidence. It's a simple thing. You had, you had a Roman seal, you had a Roman guard, you have all of this, produce the body. And silences Christianity never happens. Christianity is dead if Christ is dead. And this Paul carefully presents to us in the book of Corinthians that, listen, this resurrection from the dead, this resurrection of Jesus Christ is the principle, the truth that must be adhered to. And if you can disprove it or if you question that, you have nothing to believe in. In fact, Paul says, you are of all men the most pitiable. (laughs) Because you're believing in something so foolish and impossible and that never happened. But it did happen. So we're not dealing with uh, mass hysteria of, of uh, the masses seeing something that they just wanted to see really bad. If that was the case, they would not have been coming with this intent and purpose. So there is a historical reality, one that changed the world. They come and they are not overjoyed by an empty tomb. They are confused by it. It says they come and they're greatly perplexed. What happened here? Did Pilate or the enemies take him? What did they do with the body of our Lord? What's going on here? Even at that point, until they're confronted with these two messengers in shining garments who come to you, come to them with an expectation of belief. And this we need to address is the expectation of God for men to believe him. For men to believe in him, in his existence, to believe in his word. This is the expectation of heaven for man, is that you um, have really no valid reason not to believe him. 
I think it's fascinating how hard we try in Christianity to prove the truths of God's word. And we do it through archaeology. We do it th- um, through logic arguments. We do it, uh, and Pastor Leishman spent a lot of time that on his uh, theology proper study on Sunday night. And we, we, we do this work to try to prove God as though somehow we have a right not to believe. But God comes at it fundamentally from the totally opposite side. He says, I fundamentally expect you to believe. Why does he approach us like that? Because he knows who he is. And he knows how he created us. And he knows that he puts something within us that, that we would be aware of and knowledgeable of. And the bigger question isn't, it isn't, do you believe in God? It's, why don't you? The most foolish thing on the planet is to not believe in the one powerful, eternal creator who made you in his image. And because of that image bearingness, God always comes to man with, an expect, with this question, why don't you believe? And we feel challenged when someone comes to us with the question, why should I believe? Oh, man. Oh, no, i got to come. Well, why should they believe? What? Well, the answer to that is, God's answer to that is, why don't you believe? And I love the testimony of men who um, God is using powerfully in the area of apologetics, um, who came to that very question, why don't I believe? I'm going to get evidence, I'm going to prove that we shouldn't believe. And when they came to the problem, if you want to call it that, of God, uh, with that attitude, why don't I believe? I want to have a good reason not to believe. And I'm going to share this reason with the whole world. And then they come after years They come to Christ and say, I've done the honest investigation and I have to believe. You see, God comes and says, sends his messengers and he says, what's wrong with you people? Why didn't you believe? And fundamentally, the question that God's going to ask when we have to stand before him is, why didn't you believe? The question that, that's relayed from Abraham to the rich man as Lazarus is there is saying, if they don't believe that, they're not going to believe anything. God's expectation, he knows the capacity of man to believe. He knows the extent of the power of what he has shown. He knows the truth that he has declared. And, and it's almost as though the angels are up in heaven scratching their heads. Why don't those people believe? The question that needs to be queried in our society is, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? And that's what the angels say. Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? Why don't you believe? Why are you here getting ready for a burial when you should be celebrating? He's risen, remember? He told you this was going to happen. He told you exactly what was going to go down here in Jerusalem this week. And it happened just like he said all the way through. How can you not think the last step in the equation is going to occur? Remember, he told you this. You should be believing it. 
Let's talk about who made this claim. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. They saw him cast out demons with a word. They saw him heal any who came to him. They saw him silence his enemies. They knew his power to calm seas at a word. Don't you remember who you're dealing with? Why won't you believe? Why don't you believe what he said? And I'm tired of always being on the defensive, and that's really what apologetics is, is defending the faith. Um, it's time that the world started defending themselves for what, their unbelief. It's time for us to come to them if there's any offensive statement, uh, and not to offend, but, but on the offense, that we need to do is say, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? I mean, there, there's all this evidence out there. You're not investigating it. You haven't even read this. And you, you don't know the claims. You don't know the offers. Why don't you believe? I know why I don't believe Joseph Smith. He was a liar and a lunatic. Proven. Why don't you believe Jesus? He neither lied nor was crazy. He backed up everything he said. And it got people's attention of his enemies that couldn't deal with it. I know why I'm not a Muslim. Because I know Muhammad. I can tell you why not. He manipulated all this whole religious faith to promote his own personal agenda, both with the women and with government and politics in his own land there in Saudi Arabia. I know him. History declares him. And he's just an earlier version of some of our later tyrants. I know why I'm not a Muslim. Why aren't you a Christian? Why aren't you a Christian? What is it about Jesus that you're afraid to believe in? <laughs> Fundamentally, it's the most frightening thing. Because once you acknowledge that he is God, all-powerful, now I have to humble myself to him. And fundamentally, that's the issue. It's not because they have any evidentiary behind their unbelief. God expects people to believe. He expects them to simply acknowledge the word. That we have ample proof. And people say, well, I, how, how do you believe? Why should I believe the Bible? I said, why shouldn't you? Prove it wrong. Go ahead. Here, have my copy. Go prove it wrong. Why shouldn't you believe us is the question that should be answered, asked all over this planet. Why don't you believe? It's not been proven wrong archaeologically. They keep saying, oh, this doesn't exist, this doesn't exist. And then they dig it up and there it is. Oh, well, um, it's right where the Bible said it was going to be. Hmm. This guy didn't exist. We have no record of him. We dig a little more. Oh, well, I guess he did exist. The Bible's right again and again and again. 
For thousands of years, men have tried to test it, and it endures. No, it does more than that. It thrives. It thrives the test because it's truth. And because it declares a all-powerful God, the problem isn't that men don't have reason to believe. The fact is they have no reason not to believe. The problem is they don't want to. Because as soon as they accept this as truth, and Jesus is God, they must submit to it. Remember, why don't you believe? Why are you here? Why are you looking for the dead among the living? I'm sorry, looking for the living among the dead. There we go. Got that reversed on me. Sorry. Why are you looking for the living here? This is where dead people are. Christ is alive. And that power makes demands of us. And so they rehearse once again in verse 7 the exact words essentially of what Christ said. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again. That was just uh, about a week ago he said that. Okay? So they're just quoting him. In verse 8, they remembered his words. And the flood of memory is coming in upon them. They go back from the tomb. They tell the eleven and all the rest. Um, We have a list of the ladies that were there. But I come to verse 11 and again we're confronted. And and when we get to the next passage in a month or so, um, which is going to be a good pickup because then it will help you review this part. Um, And Christ goes in there and, and Christ is genuinely annoyed. He's genuinely annoyed with them. If you go down later on, um, he's like, what is your problem? And uh, it says, verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. I mean, that's a, a statement of absolute annoyance. Because God expects you to believe. He's backed up everything he said with evidence and power. He has faithfully done all that he has said. His expectation is that you should believe because you have no reason not to. So we come to the ladies reporting the empty tomb in verse 11. And it says, And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. You're just speaking gibberish. It's pretty much the exact same response Paul gets on Mars Hill. Raised from the dead? People don't do that. Yeah, I know. But God does. We're not dealing with just another uh, human teacher. We're dealing with a unique individual in the history of the world. The God-man. Jesus Christ. And so they're sitting here listening to us and says, oh man, you girls are gone. You know, this grief thing is really, you're just, you need to get more rest. You're babbling. Just control yourselves. 
Um, you know, and, and you can imagine every innuendo around, you know, weak-minded women or whatever. I, I don't know, any, anything that come across your brain. But it's just essentially they're just looking and says, what are you people, what are you girls talking about? You know, get a grip on yourself. And frankly, most of us respond the same way. Now remember who they're talking to. The women are talking to 12, 11 at this point, 13, um, actually, um, who have followed Christ from the very beginning all the way to the end. Who've heard him say, this is what I'm going to do. Who heard him teach, who saw him do miracles. And they don't believe. You see, belief isn't about if I see it, I'll believe it. All these men did. They saw the miracles. Didn't seem to help them that day. Fundamentally, it's about accepting who you're dealing with. And we can... And I hear it, I see it in a lot of testimonies and, and I deal with it when I talk to people. Well, I believe there's a God. I was like, really? You'd be a fool not to. What kind of God do you believe in? Who is your God? It's easy. Do you understand what you're saying when you say that? Instead, we want to Cast it off as just foolishness, foolish babbling, and rather not believe. But of course, Peter and John, we find out as well, um, take a hike down there. They're um, running a little race, um, and uh, they're going to go down and check it out for themselves. And they're going to come back. And you know what? They're going to come back with their testimony, and you know what's going to happen? They're still not quite ready to believe. How do I know that? Because the next few passages. And because when Christ does actually show up in their midst, they think he's a ghost. Faith calls us to lay hold of truth by recognizing its origin. Not by experiencing it. These men and women experienced the event, but experience is not sufficient to create belief. We live in a society where we often portray that, well, I know this is true because it worked for me. And we hear that. And in fact, if you watch anybody trying to sell stuff on the Internet or, or television, is there still television out there? Is it still going on? I don't know. There's still TV shows? They still have commercials? Okay. So if you listen to them, they still have infomercials? Go on. Okay. So if you watch those, here's what they're going to They're going to line up a whole bunch of people that say, it worked for me, it worked for me. I lost 50 pounds. I lost 120 pounds. I lost all my weight. They're dead, by the way. I always wanted to go to Jenny Craig, and when they say, lose all the weight you want, and say, I want to lose it all. See what they do. 
I want to lose all of it. 190 pounds. I want it gone. They can't guarantee that, can they? Um, but uh, and what well, worked for them, therefore, by experience, you should accept that this is going to work for you. And you should put your trust in it sufficient to send them money to get that product. And then you get it and it doesn't work for you. I believed in it. This is not happening. How did it happen for those people? Because they're all fanatics. And there was a lot more of their story than just that product. They changed their diet. They changed a lot of things in their life. And they didn't just get that one thing that wobbled their middle. Okay? But they don't tell you the rest of the story. They tell you one facet of it. We put our trust in it, throw our money at it, and then we're disappointed. Um, these people experienced it. They saw it firsthand, and they still weren't prepared to believe it. Because, frankly... Personal experience isn't as trustworthy as God. In fact, if I have someone come to me, I've experienced this. I know it's real. And I said, no, you don't. Because your experience of it does not equal reality. And if God says he doesn't do that, and you experience what he says doesn't happen, then guess what? You're wrong. Don't trust your experience. What I sense, what I have seen, what I have tasted, what I have, have felt in my affections. Oh, we don't trust that. You don't, I don't trust the eyes? Of course not. I remember um, visiting my wife's grandma. And uh, she had the TV on. And uh, she was just... Uh, fascinated and said, how do they get those dogs to move their mouths like that? Because the commercial had the dogs talking. Because if there's any day and age where we understand the concept that you can't believe your eyes, we live in it, don't we? Listen. When you acknowledge the power of God, it draws you to belief. Because he is trustworthy, because he never fails, because he is faithful, because he is true, because he is holy, 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 then we, it demands our belief. These people's belief was not built upon their experience or they would have all been believers as soon as Peter got to that tomb. But he wasn't. He was still struggling with it. He still didn't understand it. He didn't comprehend it. He was perplexed by it. And when he was confronted with Jesus himself, he still doesn't believe. Christ says, touch me. Give me something to eat. Why don't you believe? And fundamentally, Christ himself is going to say why they don't believe. is because they're slow of heart. They just won't give their heart to it. They're afraid to hope. And that fear of recognizing that if God is capable of this, oh my, what a life I'm going to have to answer for. I have to go to God for everything. I'm going to have to submit everything to Him because He is Lord and Master. 
And truly, one of the most fearful things of the scriptures is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For it means now I must deal with him in his power and glory. On the other side of that, once I trust in him and humble myself to him and recognize his lordship in my life and the necessity of that and that all he says is true, once I get on this side of it, oh, the joy. And Paul says, I want the power of the resurrection. Because the power of the resurrection means my deliverance. It means my, my forgiveness. It means my ministry. It means my eternity. It means everything for me. Because now the power is on my... I'm on the side of the power, I should say. The power is working for me, and I recognize that. But if you're here today and you're not trusting Christ your Savior, it's a frightening thing. Because you're coming up against the greatest power in the universe when you reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nuclear fission was not the greatest, power, most powerful thing ever done. All it can do is promote death. It doesn't create life. Let that sink on you. And by the way, how hard is death? How hard is it? Just because you can kill a lot at one time, that doesn't make you special. You just do it faster than Hitler did it. But not as fast as abortionists do it. Life out of death. This is power. A power to be reckoned with. A power you need to trust in or answer to. Once you've trusted it, that power works for you. For your cleansing, for uh, your ministry, for your daily living, to enable you to serve God in these days. And it will be a power that is uh, at work in us, not only in this life, but in the one to come, that we might enjoy that presence of the powerful one. Jesus Christ. That power changed heaven. It changed earth. I think it can change you. Don't you? Why don't you believe that? Is the question today. Why don't you believe? God expects you to. And and he's kind of annoyed today that you don't. But one day, you're going to have to deal with his indignation, his anger at your unbelief. Because he's done everything. He's given you no reason to not believe him.